0: Welcome to the MarTech
1: Podcast. Today we're going to talk about advertising challenges and abuse. Joining us is Matt Gillis, who's the CEO of Clean.io, which is a malvertising prevention solution for publishers, basically any website that accepts advertising through a DSP and advertising platforms to get rid of the world's advertising abuse through digital engagement security. Yesterday, Matt and I talked about malvertising's impact on marketing revenue and subscriber churn. And today we're going to continue the conversation talking about the current landscape of malvertising and specifically how COVID affected the malvertising landscape. All right, here's the second part of my conversation with Matt Gillis, CEO of Clean.io. Matt, welcome back to the MarTech Podcast.
2: Excited to be here again. Thanks for having me, Ben.
1: Excited to have you back. Excited to talk... Cover your ears for a second. Excuse the language about the shady shit in marketing. You got it. This is
2: kind of your area of uh, specialty is cleaning it up. Yes. Unfortunately, I've seen some ugly stuff, but yes, it's fun to talk about it.
1: Yesterday, we talked about you know what malvertising is, works for publishers. It happens with e-commerce companies. And it's not just shady guys sitting in the basement dropping cookies like it used to be. There's site takeovers for publishers. We're also looking at some of the biggest companies in the world have Chrome extensions, which are dropping in promo codes and just affecting e-commerce companies' bottom line. So Really, malvertising and sort of the e commerce version of it is happening and is caused by some of the little guys and some of the biggest, baddest players on the block. I'm curious to know a little bit more about the current landscape of malvertising, what's happening today that marketers need to be aware of. And I think everything these days is kind of covered by what happened in 2020. I don't know if you heard about it, but there was this global pandemic called COVID 19, and it really sort of shook up the entire world. Did that have any effect on the malvertising landscape?
2: It might have. Yeah, it was obviously, it was an eventful last 15 months. I mean, for our company, we actually set out to raise money and do our financing at the beginning of COVID. So imagine asking venture capital firms to invest in you when their doors were closed. That was fun. But we successfully got through that. You're still here. So I imagine it worked. Yeah, we raised money and I still have never met my investor, which is kind of interesting and new, but... (laughs) When the world kind of took a pause last March, it was obviously detrimental to publishers, right? So big advertisers took a pause, right? Folks that were advertising movies or car dealerships, anybody that was trying to drive traffic anywhere, you couldn't drive traffic. So they actually hit pause on their budgets. When they all hit pause on their budgets, it created this vacuum where now more than ever, there was a ton of traffic because people were sitting at home on their phones or on their PCs and consuming internet content. And the big advertisers that normally would have been there at the end of a quarter weren't there. So as you probably know, programmatic media works from a supply and demand perspective and prices are constantly moving. So prices actually went down, which created a pretty good opening for bad actors to creep in and buy a whole bunch. And so we saw pretty big surges in the early days of COVID of malicious activity, and it didn't last forever. You know, advertising demand has come back, but bad actors will still continue to pick their spots and they still do a year and a half later.
1: So why is the lowering of price something that leads to more malvertising? I mean, I understand the concept of, well, it's easier for them to buy inventory. So there is a surplus of supply. There's more inventory available. They can buy more advertising and scam more people. I kind of understand that process. On the flip side, there's also a bigger opportunity for the good actors to buy that same media at discounted rates. So why was it that malvertising sucked the open air out of the room as opposed to it just being an opportunity for smaller brands to take the media that the larger brands were gobbling up?
2: I think you're right. The reality is there probably weren't enough good guys to pick up the slack. And I think traffic surged, right? So with everybody sitting at home and on their machines, there was a whole bunch more traffic that wouldn't have normally been there. I think to understand it truly, you have to like put your performance marketer hat on And understand like, how do performance marketers actually go and execute these campaigns, which you're probably very familiar with, which is that like, listen, it's a game of arbitrage. You're trying to buy at the lowest rate and return the most amount of money. So when prices go down, it creates an opportunity for bad actors to spend more at lower prices and hopefully drive more engagements. So that's exactly what they were doing.
1: Yeah, I guess I understand the principle. I just don't see whether there'd be a relative increase in malvertising With the increase in supply, you think that the, you know, if 10% of the ads are bought by malvertisers, you would think that that would stay consistent, no matter how much the supply fluctuates, because there's still good advertisers that want to go and buy the inventory, no matter what the price is. And when it goes down, they get it for cheaper. When it goes up, they buy less of it. The relative increase is what's interesting to me.
2: Yeah. And I think also what we saw was that bad actors had the ability to buy inventory that they may not normally be able to buy at that point in the quarter, right? And so, you know, the way media trading happens is that in January, most brands don't have their budgets finalized. So there's a lot of performance demand out there and that actually plays well earlier in the quarter. As you get later in the quarter, brands have got their budgets secured and they're spending heavier and they'll usually spend obviously right through to the end of the quarter, Well, on March 10th, when the world kind of hit pause and all these big brands that were spending money hit pause, it created a big opportunity for bad actors to buy inventory on sites that probably would have either been sold out or they would have been priced out where they couldn't make the arbitrage that would make sense for them. So that's exactly what happened. So when every movie company and every car company and bricks and mortar retail, when they all take their budgets and go home. Bad actors are like, okay, here's an opportunity for us. If that used to be a $2 CPM, I can now buy that for 80 cents, or I can now buy that for 20 cents, or whatever that price is, depending on the supply.
1: Or it's, I can spend my $2, and instead of being on some website you've never heard of, now I'm on CNN, and your placements change as well. Exactly. Time for a one-minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. So talk to me a little bit about what some of the scams were, what were some of the things to look out for? What did the malvertising community do during the COVID time? Was there anything that was specific to the last year that popped up that we might
2: not be aware of? It's anything that they can do to get an engagement, anything that they can do to capture PII. So in many cases, what we saw was a flight for quality. So what they would do is they're spending a lot of money and actually creating really detailed user engagements that make... The user feel like they're part of a certain property so in some cases they'll use what looks like a facebook experience right so they'll redirect you to what looks like you're in the facebook app just to try and almost spoof you and create that experience where you think you're in facebook and so you'll actually engage with that ad basically what they're doing is they're just trying to drive engagement any way they can so they'll target on certain parameters they may target your wireless carrier and create a page that looks like t-mobile or it looks like sprint or verizon They also use brands like credit cards. So like Visa, they'll use Walmart, Amazon, Target, you name it, anything to create that belief to the end user that, hey, you're in that experience and you should trust what's happening right now.
1: I got a really realistic malvertising campaign When we were getting our first mortgage, that looked like it was an email-driven campaign, but looked like an email from our bank. And it brought me to this portal. And I stopped when it was like, "Okay, now you need to download this file. But I actually got five or six steps in before I realized. And they had the URL cloaked. They had, I mean, really sophisticated stuff where I'm hopefully a sophisticated web user and aware of some of the shady things that can happen out there. And, and I was like about to press submit and download files and
2: they almost got me. Well, that's the thing, right? These bad actors are going to use any form of engagement that they can. In some cases, it's email. Like the ones that you would probably be familiar with as a user is you get the Netflix email that says, hey, it's Netflix and your password needs to be reset or whatever that is. Hey, listen, my PayPal account was hacked. I don't know how they got my password, but they got in somehow dark web, I'm sure. So yeah, it's really all about creating that belief that you're actually part of that experience, whether that's the bank brand or someone that you trust. And they don't have to get everybody to do it. They just have to get a certain percentage of people. And if if you think about it, if they're buying a thousand ads for 20 cents, let's just say they're bottom fishing and they're buying really bad inventory, they can get literally a thousand engagements because they know how to like really drive that user in. They can get a thousand engagements for 20 cents. Let's just say you get one of them to convert. Let's just say it was like capture an email address and complete a survey and they get paid five bucks or 10 bucks, whatever the bounty is from the affiliate for driving that. You don't have to do many of them to figure out that the arbitrage on that is pretty rich. So I think it's a lot of money at stake.
1: So the supply goes up, the demand goes down, there's a vacuum, the bad guys come in, they buy up the cheaper inventory, they're getting better placements, they're kind of doing the same practices that happens. And then all of a sudden the world starts turning again. Hopefully, everybody's getting their vaccination shots and the media buyers at least are coming back in. The CPG companies are reinvesting. So the media is getting more expensive. Does that mean things go back to normal and malvertising takes a dip or did they figure out something
2: that works and now they can invest more? It's one of those things that it's not the five alarm fire constantly. If it is, they're gonna get caught. So their whole goal is to fly under the radar. A lot of what they'll do is they'll probe they'll buy very few impressions. They'll frequency cap. They'll use every tactic that a performance media buyer would use because obviously they don't want to overspend. They don't want it to be reproducible. The worst thing that can happen is if these guys go on tilt and they're buying on a website and it's constantly reproducible, that means they're going to get caught because someone is going to see it and report it. Our software actually prevents it in real time. One of the other unique things is that we actually let the bad actor buy. Most other softwares that we're competing with in this industry, they prevent them from buying. We let them buy. We think that the best way to kill these guys is to hit them in the pocketbook. So whenever they buy on a website that's protected by us, they get no engagement. It never lands on that. Congratulations. You won, pick your gift card page because they never get the user to land on that page. They never get the user engagement, which means they never get the ROI. So basically, if you think of these folks like performance media buyers, if you're a performance media buyer and you're buying on a website and you're getting no engagement, what do you do? Well, you'd stop buying on that website. So that's the real secret sauce about our software and why many of the biggest publishers on the internet use our software to protect their user experiences and their revenue.
1: So I guess the last question I have for you, I understand the dynamic of you let them buy, they spend their money the programmatic platforms are probably excited because they still get their bounty and their commission. They go and they try to drive you to an experience that you don't want to be driven to, and somehow you're able to block them. Without giving away the state secrets here, how are you able to actually figure out who is providing an experience that is malvertising and and then actually how do you block it?
2: I'll dumb it down and give you the layman, laywoman's explanation on this. Talk slowly. I'm right? not that smart. I'll use big text for you. It's a single line of JavaScript and it sits at the header of the web page. And when that web page loads, our code is the first code that loads. And what we're doing is we're behaviorally analyzing all of the events that are happening on that web page in runtime, in real time. And we're stopping the bad things from happening. We're letting the good things happen. What we know is that a normal ad that loads and renders on the page usually doesn't call certain functions to take over the user experience. And so when we see an ad that loads and then starts to call top.redirect, we're like, "Mm, that's probably not a good one. So we probably should block the JavaScript from executing. It's as simple as that. And what we do is we're looking for all of these behaviors that are exhibited from ads. Some of the things that these folks do is they'll fingerprint. So they'll start to try to understand what's going on on the device and the environment. If these bad actors think that they're in a scanning lab, like if they see a Charles proxy running on the device, they won't execute their code. If they see an Apple Pay session, that's a good sign for them. That means it's probably a real user if Apple Pay is initiated on the device. They'll do a whole bunch of those sort of things to really understand what the environment is and make sure that it's safe and make sure that it's a real user. Like if you think about it, real advertisers don't wanna buy bot traffic. Well, guess what? these guys don't want to buy bot traffic either. So they want to make sure that it's a real user, real network, real human.
1: Something tells me they're actually running the bot traffic. It's probably the same
2: people, but... Maybe, I don't know. They're pretty sophisticated in how they execute.
1: All right. Well, Matt, I appreciate you walking us through the understanding of how the darker side of marketing actually works and also how to prevent it. Thanks for being my guest. Thanks, Ben. All right. That wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Matt Gillis, CEO of Clean.io. If you'd like to get in touch with Matt, you can click on the link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter. His handle is GillisUSA, G-I-L-L-I-S-U-S-A. Or you could visit his company's website, which is clean.io, clea Just one more link in our show notes I'd like to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, just head over to martechpod.com, where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can also subscribe to our once a week newsletter, and you can even send us your topic suggestions or your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is MartechPod, M-A-R-T-E-C-H-P-O-D on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or you can contact me directly. My handle is Ben J. Schapp, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed...